Dear friends, I invite you to one more time take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter. Tonight we're going to take a look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'll begin reading at verse number 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility, humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Well, by now, you've probably realized that the major theme of this first letter written by the Apostle Peter has been that all believers are called to suffer well for their faithfulness to Christ. It is far better to suffer persecution according to God's will for being a Christian than to renounce Christ in order to avoid trouble in the moment and only then face worse judgment later. Whatever suffering you endure for the sake of the gospel, count it joy. Whatever persecution, whatever trouble, whatever trial, whatever level of suffering that you have to endure, you be faithful. You suffer well. I want you to recall what Peter wrote in chapter 4, verse 12. When he said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice 
that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Everything that we experience is put in the context of who we are in Christ and what Christ will do when he comes. So when Peter comes to this last passage or paragraph of this first epistle, he, he addresses the elders. Now the elders were not just the old guys of the church. Uh, the elders were the spiritual leaders of the church. The word elder is presbyteros, from which we get the English word presbytery or, 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 or presbytery. Um, and, and Paul says that he is a fellow elder. He is also a, a, a spiritual leader of the church. In chapter 1, verse 1, he called himself the apostle. Here he calls himself a fellow elder. He not only calls himself a fellow elder, but also a witness of Christ's sufferings. You could take that word fellow and apply it not only to elder, but also to witness. He says, I am a fellow witness of the suffering of Christ. Now you may recall and you may know that the word witness in Greek is the word martyr, from which we get the English word martyr. <laughs> so to be a witness for Christ is to be somebody that bears testimony to the Lord either until you die or until life is taken from you. So either you die of natural causes or somebody takes your life in execution, but regardless, a witness is one who bears testimony to Christ. Paul, uh, uh, Peter says that I am a, not only a fellow elder, but I'm also a fellow witness of Jesus Christ and I'm a fellow individual or one who also will share in the glory that is to be revealed so in light of all that Peter says to the church and says to the elders be shepherds of God's flock now that word shepherd um, is a common image in the Old Testament and the new and it's a very appropriate image of how we interact as pastor and people in the congregation of God you may recall that Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 6, that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That the suffering servant took all of our punishment because we are like stubborn sheep, and we go our own separate way. And I think that Peter's experience with Christ was seared into his soul. You, you recall that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was, it was Peter who denied knowing him three times. And then Jesus was executed, nailed to a cross. And he was placed into a tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. Uh, but for a couple of the initial appearing, Peter wasn't around. But you may recall the story in John chapter 21 when Peter says to his friends I think I'm gonna go back fishing and he wasn't saying I'm just gonna go to the fishing hole and you know catch us some lunch and I think Peter was saying I'm going back to my old way of life I'm going back to the old business I mean Zebedee and sons are gonna be reopened again and so his buddy said you know I think that's a good idea we'll go with you and so they went, and on that night, they fished all night long, and they caught nothing. 
For somebody who made a profession out of being a fisherman, Peter was not very good at it, was he? Because on several occasions in the New Testament, in the gospel story, we're told that Peter fishes all night long and he catches nothing. I don't know if he did that frequently, but that would not be a very good business venture, would it? So he went out, he caught nothing. They were bringing the empty nets back to shore. And all of a sudden they saw a silhouette of a man on the beach. And the man shouted, you got any fish? And Peter, that, you know, rough redneck, no, we don't have any fish. And the voice from the shore said, uh, drop your nets on the right side. And Peter must have thought, who do you think you are? The right side, as opposed to what, the left side, the wrong side, top side, bottom side? What do you think you know? And all of a sudden they drop it on the right side and... Uh, the nets get full of fish. This is a deja vu moment. I mean, Peter can remember and recall that this is what happened the first time, uh, way back in Luke chapter 5. One of the disciples uh, leaned down, whisper into the ear of Peter, I think that's the Lord. No, duh, no joke, I know it is. So he jumps out of the boat, and in good Peter fashion, he swims ahead the hundred yards, leaving all of his buddies in the back, in the boat, to tow uh, all those fish and all the boat all by themselves. Peter gets to the shore first. He doesn't say a word. He's speechless. He's dumbfounded. There's the crucified Christ that's been raised from the dead, standing right in front of him. Jesus had already started the fire over burning coals. I think John gives us that detail on purpose in John chapter 21 so that we can recall and remember that it was on that night of those denials and betrayal that Peter was warming his hands beside a fire of burning coals. Your smell is a, um, is, a, is a powerful mechanism that God has given you to remember things in the past. You can walk into a room and smell something and you can remember your grandmother's cooking. You can smell something. You can remember um, the fragrance that your wife used to, uh, her perfume and so smells is powerful. So he's standing there by those burning coals. Jesus says, bring me some of those fish. In good Baptist fashion, they counted the fish. In John chapter 21, they said, I had 153 large fish. What does that mean? They threw back the scrawny ones. They only kept the large ones. They had 153. Jesus said, bring me a couple of those. He prepared breakfast for them. He broke bread. He prepared the fish, gave it to his disciples. After breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, let's go for a walk on the beach. And Peter must have thought to himself, by ourselves? Alone? Don't you think somebody else needs to go with us? But Jesus and Peter began to walk. And Jesus asked that indicting question, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? These what? Uh, there are only two things on the seashore that day. Other disciples and stinky fish. I don't think Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? No, Jesus never was into having the disciples, you know, uh, kind of champion uh, one over the other. No, I think he's asking the question, do you love me more than these stinky fish? Do you love me more than you love your old business? Do you love me more than you love your old way of life? Do you love me more than what you love or how you're going to provide for yourself? Do you love me more than these stinky old fish? 
And it was Peter who said, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Second time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, then take care of my sheep. For a third time, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? It's not by accident. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Jesus reinstates Peter three times. On the third occasion, John tells us that Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked this question for the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I think that phrase was seared into the very soul of Peter. I think that Peter never forgot that. He knew his Old Testament uh, scripture. He knew the imagery that God is our shepherd and he holds us close in his arms uh, like a shepherd holds the lambs. And I think that, that Peter can remember Psalm 23. He can remember all of those powerful shepherd passages. But I think more than anything else, Peter is remembering in this moment where Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, take care of my flock, feed and tend my lambs. And so this is what he is telling the other elders, the other uh, spiritual leaders, the other pastors of the church. We are to be shepherds, serve as overseers. It's the Greek word episkopos. It actually means bishop. We get the English word episcopalian from it. He says, I want you to serve as overseers. Now, what does that look like? How do you do that? Not because you have to, but because you're willing to. Not greedy for grain is literally how it reads. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those that are entrusted to your care, but being examples to the flock. He uses three couplets. He says, I, I don't want you to serve because you have to. I don't want you to serve because you're forced to do it. I want you to serve because you're willing to do it. And not just that, don't be greedy for more and more and more money, but be eager to serve just for, just for the sheer joy and, and contentment of serving God's people. The word greedy actually means dishonest gain. And don't lord it over people. Don't be domineering in your leadership style, but instead be an example, a role model. As Christ is an example to us, so as pastors we are to be an example to the people that God has charged under our care. So Peter says, this is how we're supposed to serve. Then in verse 4, he says, serve as the under-shepherd. For when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade. In other words, Peter is telling all of the spiritual leaders of the church, uh, know who you are and know who you are not. I'll be the first to tell you, uh, I, I know I am an under-shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. I say this all the time in discovery class, and some of you have been to discovery class, but I always say I've got, I realize I've got several hang-ups, and I've got a couple of pet peeves. And one of them is when I hear preachers talking about my church and my people. And I don't refer to you as my people. I don't refer to this as my church. I know it's just a little it's just a little hang-up that I have, a little pet peeve. And the reason I don't refer to you as my people is because you don't belong to me. You belong to Christ. This is not my church. This church was here long before I got here, and uh, I don't have any plans to go anywhere, but this church will be here long after I'm gone. Because this church does not belong to me. This church belongs to the Lord. 
You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So you belong to him. You are his people. I know he is the chief shepherd. I am just uh, under-shepherd. That imagery of chief shepherd and under-shepherd, that was actual terminology that was used on a large farm in the first century. If a farmer had a lot of sheep, a large flock, he would have a chief shepherd. And then under that chief shepherd would be under-shepherds. And so that imagery was very common in the first century. And Peter is picking up on that and he's saying, listen, there's coming a day when the chief shepherd will appear. He's coming back. I know he left, but he's coming back. And when the chief shepherd appears, then you will receive a crown of glory. And that crown of glory will not fade. I think when Peter gets to the end of his letter, I think he wants to tie some things together. Some things that he talked about way back in chapter 1. You may remember or understand that um, in those days, a crown was usually um, arrangement of flowers. It was put together a, a, a wreath of leaves. And every crown that was given to the victor of the athletic event or uh, given to a, a prominent person in society, those, those crowns, they, they would fade. Because what do flowers do? Flowers die. Which is exactly what Peter told us in chapter 1. In chapter 1, um, he says, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So here he's telling us that we're going to get a crown that does not fade. We're going to get a crown that does not uh, die. We're going to get a crown that does not diminish. We're going to get one that is unfading. Earlier in chapter 1, Peter spoke about that we have been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. That imperishable seed is the living, enduring word of God. Everything comes from a seed. Stop and think about it. A tree, fruit, you. I mean, everything is made from a seed. And the seed becomes like what it came from. So you were made from a seed and, and, and you look kind of human because you came from a human seed. You don't look like an apple because you didn't come from an apple seed. You don't look like a pear because you didn't come from a pear uh, seed. You, you came from a human seed. And so the seed begins to take on the properties, the characteristics of that which it came from. And Peter is saying the same thing. You have been born again. You have been born of an imperishable seed. It does not die. It is living. It is enduring. He said it's the living, enduring word of God. I think he's having a double meaning. Not only the word of God that you hold in your hand, but the logos, the very word of God, Jesus himself. You are from the living, enduring word of God. And what he's going to give you is a crown that does not fade. It does not perish. It does not die die we just came from valentine's day and some of you guys probably gave flowers to your wives i hope you did and then after a few days what happened to those flowers they're dead they're gone in fact by now they're probably not still alive it's only been a couple of weeks right but 
They're not alive. They're in the trash. They've already been out of the house and, and gone to the sanitation collection agency. I mean, they, you don't have them anymore because flowers fade. Grass withers. The things of this world here today, gone tomorrow. But you, you've been born of imperishable seed. You have been born again in the living, enduring word of God. And when the chief shepherd appears, he's going to give you a crown of glory that does not fade. It's like nothing in this world. So be encouraged, Peter is telling the church, and he's telling the leaders of the church. You get to verse 5, and he tells the church to be submissive. This is a common theme all throughout 1 Peter. Chapter 2, verse 13, submit to every authority, kings or governors, whatever it is. All people need to submit to those in authority. Chapter 2, verse 18, slaves submit to your master. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives be submissive to your husbands. Here in chapter 5, verse 5, young men be submissive to the elders, those in authority. Then he just simply says, clothe yourselves with humility. That's a common image all throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. To clothe yourselves with humility. The word that Peter uses for clothe is, is a word that means to tie around. An apron, perhaps. Maybe it's the attire of a servant. I think it's more likely the attire of a shepherd. Because a shepherd in those days would also wear an apron-type garment. And so he's picking up that same idea, that same thought, that we are to clothe ourselves, we are to be draped with, we are to tie around everything in our life, humility. Then he quotes Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Wow, let that sink in. I mean, what does God dislike? Human pride. What puts a person at odds with God? Pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So that tells you and me, you know what? If I'm going to really try to err on one side or the other, let me err on the side of being humble more than erring on the side of being proud. But there's a catch to that, isn't there? Because my human nature has a proud bent to it. And not just mine, but yours too. It, it comes naturally to be proud. And, and you know people that are very boastful, very proud, and you think to yourself, you really have nothing to be proud of, right? I mean, what, what you're proud of is really quite pathetic because it's just our nature to be, to be proud and arrogant. We have to work at humility. It takes a a real effort to be humble. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's counterhuman to be humble. And you've heard what I've heard for so many years that the moment you think that you got the corner on humility, it's right then that it just slipped through your fingers and you became proud again, right? Because there are some people that are so humble, they're proud of their humility. If you don't believe me, just ask them. And they'll tell you how proud they are of their humility. And right then, it, it, just, it just slipped through your fingers. So I don't want to be a, on the opposite side of God. I, I don't want to be an enemy of God. And the surefire way to become an enemy of the Lord is to be proud. But the way that God uh, welcomes us into his, 
into his very presence that he gives grace to the humble. So then Peter, beginning in verse 6, he rattles off a string of imperatives. There are about three of them. It looks like more in the English text, but in the original Greek, there's about three imperatives that he just lists off one after the other. The first one is be humble. Humble yourselves, he says, under God's mighty hand. That phrase, under God's mighty hand, that's the only time in the New Testament that phrase is used. Now, in the Old Testament, we find this a lot, under God's mighty hand. And it harkens back most of the time, back to the great Exodus event. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God delivered his people from Pharaoh, from the Red Sea, from the enemies, led them into uh, the promised land. And so you read the Exodus event and you'll hear time and time again that God did this under God's mighty hand. For Peter, this is the only time he uses it. It's the only time that that phrase is found in the New Testament. So how do we, how do we humble ourselves? The only suggestion he gives us in verse 7 is by casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I know in English it looks like uh, cast is, is another imperative or a command, but it's really not. Uh, in the ancient text, it's, it's, it's a participle. It just describes how we are to be humble. The way you can uh, uh, become humble is by casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because if you stop and think about it, Prayer demands humility. Because when you pray, you're, you're going to one who is greater than you. That requires humility. You, you are telling him how great he is. You are requesting of him help in this scenario or that sickness or this situation. And so prayer demands humility. So Peter says, you want to be humble? Cast all your anxiety, all your fears, all your worries, all those things that keep you up at night. You cast all of that repeatedly upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares so very much for you. So be humble. How do I do that? Be a person of prayer. You show me a person of prayer, I'll show you a person who's extremely humble before the Lord. Because they know their place. They know that they bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The first imperative is be humble. The second one is be uh, clear-minded. That word clear-minded can also be translated self-controlled as it is in my text and maybe yours too. To be self-controlled, its synonym is to be alert. He uses that word self-controlled uh, two other times in verse, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. There it is again. Prayer comes up again. For us to be clear-minded, to be self-controlled, that word actually conveys the idea of spiritual sobriety. To be clear-minded, to be able to be alert, to, to think well, to uh, put your thoughts together in an accurate way, free from confusion. It's, uh, it's a word that conveys the idea that's opposite of a drunken stupor. Because if you stop and think about, if somebody's intoxicated, their thinking is foggy, their speech is slurred, and they think more highly of themselves than they ought. 
Not that any of you know from personal experience about intoxication, okay? Not accusing anybody of knowing what it feels like to be in a drunken stupor. But you've probably seen movies, and you've probably read books, and you've probably had college roommates, okay? And maybe they got into a drunken stupor. And when they were inebriated, what happened? Well, it, it, it affected uh, their thinking. Their thinking was foggy. They got behind a wheel of a car. I mean, who's thinking right by doing that? Their speech was slurred. Just listen to them. Can't put two words together. And they thought more highly of themselves than they ought because they thought they could whip anybody, anytime, anywhere, right? And then they get frustrated and drive their fist through a concrete wall, or at least try to drive their fist through a concrete wall, wake up the next morning and say, how in the world did this happen? What happened to my hand? Once again, I'm not speaking from personal experience. I'm speaking from hypothetical scenarios. So Peter says, be self-controlled. What does that mean? Spiritual sobriety. Free from confusion. Um, you got to be clear-minded. You got to be uh, have a spirit of self, be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. And what's his purpose? His purpose is to devour. If you have a prowling lion, neither the sheep nor the shepherd sleep very well. I think there's maybe another imagery here too uh, Peter could be hearkening to the Colosseum uh, the, the, some Christians were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum those prowling roaring lions that were there to rip somebody to shreds to the thunderous applause of the bloodthirsty Romans and, and maybe he's talking about that level of persecution but regardless he says, you, you've got to be alert. You've got to be sober, spiritually speaking. You've got to be self-controlled. Why? Because your enemy is real. Now, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. But your enemy is real. You don't want to go against a lion in a drunken stupor, do you? The answer is no, you don't. Because you won't survive. You've got to be sober-minded. You've got to be clear-thinking. You've got to have a spirit of self-control. So Peter says, be humble. Uh, be clear-minded. The third imperative that he gives is resist him. How do you resist the devil? He says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm means be immovable. Take your post. He also says, gain confidence and encouragement from the fact that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And, and, and if they're enduring that suffering, so can you. And if they're faithful, you can be faithful too. I mean, at some level, we come to church because we gain encouragement, we gain confidence, we gain strength, yes, from the Lord, but also from one another. When I see what you go through, that helps me. When I see how you grieve, when I see how you handle tragedy, when I see how you uh, experience the various trials of your life, and when I see your faith on display, that's encouraging to me. And not just to me, but to others. Because we, we see that we have brothers and sisters who are facing trials of many kinds, and they have the strength of the Spirit of God empowering them. And if God's going to do it for them, he just may do it for me. 
when I have to stand at that casket, when I have to be there awaiting that surgery, when I'm going to receive the bad news from the doctor, whatever it may be, we see how we handle the scenario and it strengthens us. That's what Peter says to the church. Resist the devil by standing firm and also gain confidence from the fact that you have spiritual siblings throughout the world that are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the suffering that you're experiencing and they're experiencing, it is inevitable and it is brief. He says in this passage and once again in chapter 1 verse 6, he talked about how in chapter 1 verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... You may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials for a little while. He says the very same thing in our passage, that we suffer a little while. How long is a little while? I don't know. But compared to the glory that is to come, compared to eternity, compared to our life with Christ in heaven, even if we endure suffering, from the cradle to the grave. It's a little while compared to what we're going to experience in eternity. And none of us experience suffering completely, nonstop, from the cradle to the grave, do we? I mean, all of us have the capacity to look back over life, and there was some moment when it was good. You may think to yourself, but preacher, that was so long ago. It's so hard for me to think about that. But there was a moment when it was good, right? There was a moment in your life when you felt blessed. There was a moment. Yeah, yeah, but it's way back. But there was a moment. Because none of us experience suffering from our first breath to our last breath. Even if we did, that would still be a little while compared to eternity. So Peter says, gain strength from this. Uh, you'll be able to resist him. So be strong, be firm, be steadfast. Verse 11, to him be power forever and ever, amen. Who is the him? It is not the devil, I'll tell you that much. To him be power forever and ever, amen. The him is the chief shepherd. The him is Lord Jesus himself. Now, from the perspective of those living scattered through Asia Minor and the Roman Empire, they may have expected um, that Rome contained power and dominion forever and ever. Now, why would people living in the first century think that all power and all dominion rested in Rome? Well, you've heard the phrase, haven't you? The sun never set on the Roman Empire. They talk about, in history books, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You know how they did that? With an iron fist. That's how they did that. I mean, the Roman Empire, the soldiers, the military, it was the greatest the world had ever seen up until that moment. And they were ruthless. There were some ruthless individuals. It was, a, it was a gruesome nation. And so they, with an iron fist, they ruled their own people and they conquered other nations. So somebody living in the first century would think all power, all dominion, is squarely in Caesar. All power, all dominion is there in the capital city of Rome. All power, all dominion is all throughout the Roman Empire because every place you look, the sun never sets on the Roman Empire. And Roman soldiers and Roman military, they are posted everywhere in the world. But Peter says, no, the Roman glory 
is fading. But the glory of Christ is forever. To him, his power forever and ever. Amen. If you stop and, and consider that for the first several centuries, the Roman Empire stood against this infant church. I mean, it wasn't until Constantine, that's the fourth century, when Constantine was converted to Christ, then Christianity uh, kind of became a recognized religion, the recognized religion of Rome. But for the first 300 years, the Roman Empire was against the church. In fact, the Roman Empire tried to stamp out the church. They had all the power, all the weaponry, all the mechanism, all the skill to be able to do it, but they couldn't. They could not stamp out the church. They tried. They persecuted as many Christians as possible. They threw them uh, into the Colosseum, to the gladiators, to the lions. They kidnapped them. They stripped away all of their power and prestige and possessions. They taxed them heavily. I mean, they did everything to turn the church on itself to help it to implode or explode, one of the two. They did everything to stamp out the church, but they couldn't. Why? To him be power forever and ever. The Roman glory is fleeting. God's glory is forever. America's glory is fleeting. God's glory is forever. Whatever your suffering is, is fleeting. God's glory is forever. Whatever persecution we have to endure, whatever's in front of us, whatever's in the future, Whatever, it's fleeting, friends. But God's glory is forever. Peter wants to go out with a bang of hope. He wants to tell the church, listen, you have given yourself to something that's greater than yourself. You have been born again in the living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, you belong to him. His living, enduring word of God rests inside of you. And because of that, his power is your power. And his power, his glory, his dominion is forever. Amen? That's what he says. And then he speaks uh, at the very end, verse 12 and following, with the help of Silas, a faithful brother, I've written you briefly. I've written to encourage and testify that this is the true grace of God, so stand fast in it. Who is Silas? He's the Silas that you think about. The one that was Paul's companion. Uh, the one that was a leader in the Jerusalem church. The one, according to Acts 16, was with Paul as a fellow Roman citizen. Uh, this is Silas. Silas was a, a leader in the church. He knew Paul. He knew Peter. Um, he, is, he was one who co-authored uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians with the Apostle Paul. And so Peter says here that I had the help of Silas. What does that mean? Did Silas help him write this text? Or did Silas just carry this text to the uh, Christians in Asia Minor? Or did Silas do both? And my answer is, I don't know. He probably did both. He probably had something to do with the writing of it. And he probably was the courier that carried uh, this, this uh, parchment, this manuscript, to the Christians that were scattered all in Asia Minor. But this is Silas. And Peter says, uh, this that I testify about, this is the true grace of God. What is the this? 
that this could be your present difficulty, but greater still, I think, is the truth of this letter. This true letter is the grace of God. And even your persecution is the grace of God. What you're experiencing is the grace of God on display. God is gracious to you because you've humbled yourself before him. So stand firm in it. Don't waver. Don't retreat. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't stop. You stand firm. And then he says that uh, she, who was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Who is the she? She who? One theologian said, that's Peter's wife. (laughs) I don't think it's Peter's wife. I think the she is the church. The church sends you greetings. Because you think that you're alone, Christians in Asia Minor. You're not. God's church, God's people everywhere, even the ones here, they're sending you greetings. Have there ever been times in your life when you thought to yourself, I am so alone. I've got nobody. The truth of the matter is, you're not alone. You've got brothers and sisters. Who are we? We are dear friends. We're agape ones, remember? We're we're agape ones. We're dear friends. You are not alone. He says, so she, I think it's the church, she in Babylon. What is Babylon? Well, most believe that's either the capital city of Rome or the Roman Empire. Um, But to God's people, what is Babylon? Babylon is not our home. That's what Babylon is. You remember when the southern kingdom of Judah was deported into Babylonian captivity? They went for 70 years. They went to a place not their home. And I think that Peter, once again, is tying a nice bow to this letter because in the very opening lines of chapter 1, he speaks to God's elect, strangers in this world, scattered throughout Asia Minor. You are God's elect, chosen before the very foundation of the world. You are strangers in this world. That word stranger is foreigner. This world is not your home. And what's happened to you? You've been scattered abroad all over the place. And you may recall when we first started 1 Peter that these cities that are listed there, they're not the They're not the big cities of Atlanta and Las Vegas uh, and New York City. These are the small towns. This is Pelham and Helena and Alabaster and Calera. These are the small areas, yet you've been scattered all over the place. You are the diaspora. You are the scattered people. In regards to wherever you're scattered to, it's not your home. If you're in Christ, this is not your home. You're in Babylon. You're just kind of passing through. So Peter says that she, the church, who is scattered all throughout Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Did Peter have a boy named Mark? No, this is a spiritual child. This is John Mark. This is the one that was a friend to Paul, that's a friend to Peter. And Peter says, this is my son in the ministry. And my my dear spiritual son Mark, he sends you greetings. And I want you to greet one another. 
with a kiss of love. Uh, tonight we can just handshake, all right? We can give a hug of love. And then he, f- he finally wraps it up, peace to all who are in Christ. This, once again, is a nice bow that he ties. In chapter 1, verse 1, at the very end of, actually it's verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he ends his letter by saying, once again, because of who Jesus is, that living hope that we have in his resurrection, because of who he is and what he's done, we have peace. So peace to all of you who are in Christ, because his peace belongs to you. So peace to all in Christ. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God, peace with ourselves, we have peace with one another. We have peace in the midst of chaos. We have peace within suffering. We have peace over persecution. In all things, we have peace with God. This world, this world can't take anything from us because all that we have belongs to the Lord Almighty. Everything that we do have has been given to us, not by this world, but by God Almighty. So we have peace with God. So we sing the song sometimes, don't we? That when peace like a river attendeth my way and when sorrows like like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It's well with my soul. How can Christians say that? Because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. He is our living hope. We have been reborn in that hope. And that hope is not fanciful thinking. That hope is rooted in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus was slain on the cross, and because he was placed in a borrowed grave, and because on the third day he was raised from the dead, it doesn't matter the persecution that comes our way. We are going to suffer well. Because Christ and him crucified. So peace be with you. God be praised.